So do I just go for it then when I want? Yeah, why not? (laughs) (laughs) All right then. And welcome to the Write for Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading, and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for October has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are fantabulous. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. I'm Donna Sorensen. And I'm back from my holidays. And that means I'm back with... Uh, Ian Broom. Great. Hello, I've, Ian. And, and I've got none. Well done. Fantastic uh, start to the show. Did it first time, no problem. <laughs> yeah, of course I did. Well, you know, I'm a semi-professional voiceover artist, um, copywriter, poet, and professional sponsor reader. And a fine job you did too. So, um, so yeah, you're back. I'm back, and um, I should just start by saying thanks ever so much to Manuela and um, also to Senna. Sana. Oh, God, yeah, Sana. She was lovely. My goodness. She did not sound Dutch. She really Dutch. She's really Dutch. She is from uh, the Netherlands, as she, as she said. She's, um, she, she does not sound... Well, she, does, she's, she doesn't sound English, but I think it's that Americanized. Uh, oh, that's what I meant. She sounded totally American. I mean, I spend a lot of pe- a lot of time with people who are obviously have English as their second language, and people who are exceptional at at English, and um, and it was amazing. I I wouldn't have been able to tell that she wasn't American. Maybe our American listeners would have been able to tell, but I certainly couldn't. No, she is uh, she is extremely fluent. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so it was great listening to you guys, to Manuela, and you having a chat on the first podcast, and then also to Sana and yourself. Well, I, it was, uh, it, I, I kind of realised as I was speaking to them, it kind of made me realise how many episodes we've done together now. It's kind of been a while since I had a, had, had someone else to talk to. <laughs> I know, it must have been um, invigorating for you, to say the least. Uh, not at all. I'm, I'm delighted you're back. It's, um, um, uh, it's, it's been a... It's been a sorry ship without you, but um, I mean, what's been going on while while um, while you've been away? Just a just a sort of normal holiday. Normal holiday. Um, well, a very late summer holiday, which was amazing. I highly recommend everybody to just sack off summer holidays and do autumn holidays. Well, this, isn't this you had a what was it? You had an early early summer holiday and mid summer holiday, and this was the late one. Was that right? <laughs> Stop it. No, I had. I wouldn't call the holiday that we had together back in June a holiday. That was my main holiday, <laughs> and you're not even calling it a, a holiday at all. I would call it um, a family gathering that people could make films out of because of all the stuff that goes on in those kind of situations. Well, I'm calling it my main holiday for 2014. <laughs> I mean, how how much time did we spend lying around relaxing during that holiday? Eh? Well, about 20 minutes a day, but that counts. <laughs> it was fantastic, don't get me wrong. But, um, yeah, we planned this this actual holiday a long time ago, Ian, so that's why I just had to go on two holidays. I'm sorry. Oh, well, if you're going on holidays so often, I imagine you do need to plan ahead. <laughs> um, went for the first time ever to Mallorca, and um, I was not expecting to like Mallorca very much, but I really did. 
if you avoid certain areas, i.e. all of the coastline, pretty much, no, not all of the coastline, but lots of the coastline and um, the very touristy areas, it's just, it's it's a really charming place with just wonderful opportunities to relax. And uh, is there any particular reason you might want to re- relax more than normal? Yeah, I've got a baby in my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird that I had to say it in that accent. You didn't You didn't have to say it in that accent. I did. It's just like a baby. Um, I should just translate that for everybody. I, um, I have a baby in my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not translating. That's saying the same thing <laughs> again. It is. But I don't need to translate that, do I? I mean, everybody knows how these things work. Babies getting into tummies. I've got one in mine. And um, it's very exciting. That Con- baby will be coming out in April. Congratulations. Thank you ever so much. I think I um, I speak on behalf of everyone uh, listening and saying, um, well done. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, so, uh, so, yes. So I am now looking ahead to 2015 in a different way because, well, I will have a little bit of maternity leave before baby two arrives and um, I'm just thinking, oh, writing time. Did I don't you, know how realistic that is, but... Did you write a lot when you were on maternity leave first time round? Yes, well, when I was on maternity leave first time round, um, so four weeks before my baby came, I got an email saying from my publishing company saying they wanted to publish my uh, poetry collection. And I tried to call everyone in my family to tell them, but uh, you and my sister were in hospital um, having my twin nephews delivered. So nobody was answering and nobody was interested at all that day. It was weird that it happened the same day. Did you know that, by the way? No, I don't think I did. That it was I the did. same day? No. Um, so, yeah, so there was a, I felt like there was a bit of a flurry of activity there just just around finding that out. I guess that kind of news spurs you on to write more, doesn't it? You feel positive. Um, what's it called? Positive, you know, whatever. What's the word I'm looking for? Where you get a pat on the back and then it makes you want to do more. Feedback? Like a little doggy. No. Positive affirmation? Reinforcement. Positive reinforcement? No, I don't think that's it. No. Uh, uh, positive forcement. <laughs> oh dear it's it's something like that but you know all of you know what I'm talking about here you get bad news you don't want to sit down and write do you I mean bad writing news like please don't send us any more poems ever we don't like them that wouldn't exactly motivate you but you know an email saying we want to publish your book it's like woohoo got loads of poems so you must be. So you're looking forward to um, a, a bit of uh, time to focus. And I, is, do you think maybe, without wanting to sort of, you know, psychoanalyze and go a bit too deep on this, is it the fact that that is a de- you've got like a really juicy, tangible deadline there? Mm. Are you just looking forward to having a very specific deadline, which you not haven't necessarily had uh, recently? Yes, and also a block of time where I know that there's not going to be anything else pressing me in my daily routine so I should actually have some time and some brain space so yeah all of those things combined we'll see whether this you know ends up happening but I've I've got big plans for actually finishing like longer longer bits of writing and stuff so yeah so anyway obviously all very exciting um so yeah so I was doing that no I was not doing that while I was on holiday I was doing that obviously a bit before I mean (laughs) (laughs) By doing that, you know what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, I think we do. I think so. <laughs> Good. Do you want to keep all this in? Keep all what in? <laughs> all of this. <laughs> was that, was that, was that a, a quadruple entendre that I just slipped into there? Oh, there's another one. It was. Oh, hey. Okay. Oh, it's good to be back, yeah. Indeed. I didn't have any of these problems in the previous two weeks. No. Uh, Copenhagen Poetry Festival? Oh, yes. I popped along to that before I went on holiday. Um, regular listeners might remember me complaining a few weeks back that um, there was a, a, an international poetry festival going on just down the road and I'd not heard anything about it at all. And I was, and you took the mickey out of me and said, oh, anyone would think you, like, did something about publicising events in Denmark. Do you remember that? I remember that, yes. Oh, I, it barely crossed my mind that you said that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I, I went along because I knew um, some of the Irish poets that had been invited over to read. Very glad I did. It was really, really great, very relaxed. Um, and I met some great people, made some good contacts. Felt like I was hobnobbing again, you know. It's good to do a bit of hobnobbing, isn't it? It's always good to do some hobnobbing, especially with a nice cup of tea. Well, yeah, didn't have one of those. That would have been nice. Um, we, yes, we caught up, chatted about uh, literary events going on in Ireland and stuff like that and how much I missed it. And I met some people who were organising events here. Um, and then I went along to an open mic night and read some of my poems, not an open mic night, an open mic day, actually, very civilised, and read some of my poems um, at the festival, which was nice. Um but I had a funny incident, which I just wanted to feedback. It's not really that funny, but it reminded me of an earlier incident that was quite funny. Um, I was sitting chatting to a young Danish poet, just, you know, you know when you meet another writer at these literary events and you've got no idea of their background, their experience, what kind of stuff they write, and you just start chatting to them. And we had quite a long time to chat because the event didn't start for ages. And I was sitting there just going on, oh, blah, blah, about poetry and uh, and he was asking me, you know, who who I was influenced by and things like that. And I look back and I think, oh, my God, who was I saying? I was probably going, I remember saying Seamus Heaney. You should definitely read Seamus Heaney because, like, his dad and mum and dad were farmers. And, you know, and he's not. And he's all this. It just sounded so ridiculous anyway. Um, and we were talking about the fact that I had been advised in the... Um, at previous events just to say a little bit about what you were going to read or about your poems to, to help people into it and he said oh I've never done that before and um so when he stood up to read his stuff um he said oh well, you know I've just been chatting to someone they suggested that I say a little bit about it so I will and he was like you know I'm a serious drug addict and um I've spent the summer in psychiatric hospital and and you know here's my my poem about um, injecting someone else's blood into my arm, this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I was just like, this is, it's just so mad that you like, you meet somebody and you're talking and you're talking about your work and you've got no idea of what they've been through, what they're bringing to their work and, and their experiences. And I was just, I was just floored. I was like, I've just been chatting to this guy for like 45 minutes and I had no idea about all this stuff. And through his poetry now, I know that he's been through all this. I just felt a bit embarrassed. I'd been waffling on about fields and farms and birds, probably. <laughs> Have you ever had an incident like that? Um, I, yeah, sim similar, I suppose. I can't really specifically remember any of them, but you know, quite a few at Words Aloud, which was the spoken word night that I, that I, that I ran. So I, you know, I would frequently, and um, you know, well, we chat to 
every all of the readers you know just uh, after after the show or even before the show or by email and um and you know you get to know people in in snippets like you do all people in snippets and fragments of conversations that you have with them and then of course they go and bear their soul on stage and you go all right okay yes um, yeah I, what were we just talking about yeah, yeah. um but you know maybe, maybe he um maybe he went back to um his podcast and uh and and talked about this english english uh slash irish slash danish writer who talked about farms and stuff <laughs> who was just waffling on at him for ages yes well maybe i mean i it was it was powerful stuff i don't think i would have got so much out of his poetry if he hadn't actually introduced it a little bit so that was really good you know and it was really really interesting to have a chat to him but um it reminded me of an earlier incident where at the irish book awards when i was working in publishing i was at the toilets and um standing there with a lady and and I, it's one of those it, you, do you remember the film notting hill uh, not in the sort of detail that you might want me to, but I'm, I'm aware <laughs> really? of it. Are you sure? Because do you not remember that the, Hugh Grant invites Julia Roberts round for, for for like a family and friends dinner? Oh yeah, and and the 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 guy from Downton Abbey comes in and says, "Oh hello, yeah, what do you do? Oh, you're an actress. That's oh, terrible, terrible business. Yes, never earn any money. Do you remember that bit? I, I know the bit you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I had one of those incidents at a toilet in a toilet with. Um, you know, a best-selling novelist of like twenty novels, where she's called Sheila O'Flanagan. Obviously, I hadn't did not recognise. I didn't know who she was, and I was like, "Oh, you write books? Oh, that's nice." Yes, I'm pretty sure I said something about how difficult it was to get them published and all that nonsense, you know. And she was just looking at me, thinking, "Oh my God, you've got absolutely no idea about anything." <laughs> I still feel like that. I, I I've decided that that's permanently how we're going to feel. I guess with you know you don't know what authors look like all the time, do you? Not always. No. So there you go. That's what I've been doing. I have been quite busy. It, it sounds like it, and you've been. I'm impressed that you took the time to catch up on the uh, the last two episodes of the podcast with Manuela well, of and Sonas. Of course, it was fabulous to have listened to you guys. Um, yes. What, what can you now tell me? Yes. What did you think to my? description of um scooby-doo and the world of scooby-doo accurate it's hard for me to judge because i knew who he is so i i would like to i, I should probably play it to my husband who will have no idea who it was and see what he thinks of it because for me it, it summed it up perfectly um yeah why could he talk and scrappy could uh, why could he not talk and scrappy-doo could well i just wonder who uh, you know? Who's Scrappy's mum and dad? Because <laughs> Scrappy's mum and dad presumably had an influence on Scrappy in some way, and probably helped him talk. But if either uh, either Mrs. Do or Mister Do, um, one of them must have must be related to Scooby, who were brought up by the same, you know, grandma and granddad do. Then something's gone wrong somewhere, and Scooby should be asking a few questions. Something's gone terribly wrong, yeah. But I, I'm also amazed that we're able to now talk about um, fictional dogs and Scooby-Doo for a, for a second podcast because I was thinking about Sana. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my God, poor thing. She's never heard of it, and she's literally getting a, a synopsis of Scooby-Doo 
I mean, she did very well not to just say, actually, I've got to go. Someone's calling on the other line. <laughs> she, was, um, she was very polite throughout. She was. Um, I was just going to say about on that subject that uh, my favourite literary dog is none. I don't like dogs, and I think that probably affects me when I read about a dog in a book. I'm not going to like them very much. I did like your dog in your book. And then I realised when I was writing that that I couldn't remember what it was called, and you told you said that you had... The name was really important. Can you give me a clue? Uh, I can give you a clue. um, Cakes. Victoria Sponge? That's a very odd name for a dog. I suppose Victoria. You could call a dog Victoria, I suppose. Could do, yeah. Uh, Kipling. Kipling. Of course Kipling. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I did enjoy Kipling. I'm not just saying that. Um, I have a favourite pig. Wilbur and Charlotte's Web. Yeah, good choice. Um, I, th- I just think it's really hard to like dogs and actually literary animals in general. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because how do you give them personality? So I didn't want to go on about it last week, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> there you go. So now you're going to go on about it this week. Now you're back. I think it's worth mentioning that there is a significant dog in my own novel, which is called Ayers for Angelica, available for 99p in the UK throughout October. I don't know if I've mentioned that already, but perhaps not. There you go. Um, uh, and it, it, it's a significant character, but it's because it's significant in the sense that it's, you know, Paul Kipling's not very well, and he's kind of a reflection of what happens to the other characters in the novel. And so you can do, you know, as a, a, an animal is a, a literary device of, in 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 many ways. You can, they might not be able to talk. I'm sure there are plenty of talking animals in literature, but um, but they're, they're a way of kind of showing. You know, how animals are treated by the human characters is a way of showing what those human characters are like or how they, you know, maybe they can have relationships with animals better than they can um, uh, humans, that kind of thing. So there is there is room, certainly, for animals in literature. As that Wikipedia page I talked about last week would illustrate, mm. there are lots of fictional dogs knocking around. Have you ever read Animal Farm? No, it's funny you should mention that because I'm st- I'm I've never read 1984 either. Have you? I have, yeah, great. Yeah, I've I've been for the last six months. I've started it. I've read the first ten pages, an awful lot, but I just feel it's. I just feel like I need a bit. I I really need to just sit down and read a lot in one go and give myself lots of time. I just keep. I just do it. it get yourself some space at some point and do that. It's a, it is, of course, one of those things I have to read and I should have read. It wasn't on my syllabus at university, so but it's, I, it's not even because of that that I'm I'm encouraging you. But you remember the girl, a girl's a half form thing that we've talked discussed at uh, many a time on, on the podcast, um, and how everyone's talked about how difficult it is to get into. And I really enjoyed the first few pages, and then I just didn't. You know, I felt like exactly like you're feeling now about it. I needed more time, and I didn't have it, and I was just putting it off and putting it off, putting it off. Last night, I blooming, oops, took in half that book, I reckon. That sounded like a weird way to say that I read half the book. You, you, <laughs> you I, absorbed it. I, I literally absorbed it into my head. Um, and I was just, I just had that small bit of brain space. It, it was only a few hours, and, or maybe like an hour or something like that. Um, and I really got into it. So stick with... Oh, not stick with it, but go back to 1984, Ian. Go back to 1984. Let it into your brain box. 
Um, I, I will do because I, I really must. But um, yeah, just a struggle to read. I haven't read um, Animal Farm either. I don't think I've read any Orwell. I don't think, uh, maybe, maybe I missed that week at university, but I, I just, mm. I haven't read any of it. I've read pretty much something by all the people that I should have read something by. Yeah. Um, but but not him. Oh. Have you ever read anything by Patrick Modiano? No, I haven't. Has should- anyone? <laughs> Well, uh, it's quite, yes. I could tell I mean, you who has. Who? The people that award the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's true. Um, and uh, yes, so that was interesting news today. I mean, I'm, I'm hopping around here. I would like to come back to um, to some of the points you talked about last week on the podcast. I don't really think we've got that much to say about the Nobel Prize, actually. It has been announced today, and French writer Pat- Patrick Modiano has won. Well, the, the most- 15th French person to receive it. The most uh, discussed thing about the Nobel Prize this year, as it has been for a number of years, um, is not the fact that Patrick Modiano won, it's more that another year has gone by mm. where uh, Murakami hasn't won. Yes, I know, and um, and how you shouldn't bother betting on, on the Nobel Prize. But I saw on Twitter this week um, uh, an editor, I can't remember where, it was a Guardian somewhere? John Sutherland, I think he was called, did his list of um, the most difficult books to finish, he found. And Murakami's on it. The, you know, the IQ84, I've got that. I didn't finish it either. I've got, I've um, got, it. I've got it and not started it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's absolutely jimongous as well. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, he, he's always on the list. But, I mean, I don't know. I think the, the Nobel Prize is, is very interesting. At least it opens up writers you don't know about. And, you know, it brings them into a broader arena. But like this guy, this guy, that sounds very disrespectful. This <laughs> um, extremely experienced and now Nobel Prize winning author is not, doesn't actually have many works published um, in anything other than French, as far as I can see. Hopefully he will now. Yeah, well, you would think so. I mean, it's a, it's a, a decent old award to win, but I am, um, yeah. It's it, uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature is a is it's not one that I particularly look forward to every year. No, I know what you mean, and a couple of reasons why I think that's interesting is I just read that they tend to be older, the re- the writers. Um, it's, I don't, it's kind of that, it's kind of like a lifetime achievement award. Award. It is like a lifetime achievement award, and I feel like they're you know it's it's often obscure writers that people feel you should know more about. So you say, okay, well, that's great. Thanks for letting me know. And hopefully I'll get around to reading them. Alice Munro's not one of those, obviously. I mean, you know, she's no. very much more accessible. That's true. Do you know how many um, Brits have won the Nobel Prize for Literature? 16. Uh, close. Uh, 15. No. 14. France has the most winners at 15. Less than 15. Yes, less than 15, nine. But I was wondering... How many do you think you could name? Because that's that's quite interesting. In Ireland, I think everybody can name their Nobel laureates for literature. But I couldn't name our, our British laureates. Should I be able to name them? You should be able to name a few. I mean, one of them won, what, seven years ago? And uh, with a very famous um, video where she was told and said, oh, f- f- Uh <laughs> So you don't know who that is either, do you? Um, no, but I know that I need to think carefully once we've finished whether I actually beep that out or not. 
Because you, oh. you know when you say the first letter of a swear word, people have a relatively good idea about what comes next. <laughs> I was going to say for five minutes. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, I could probably name two of our n- nine laureates, and I was surprised that we don't take more pride in it, actually. We are all very detached from it, it seems. Well, if you have a list, we'll put the list in the show notes and everyone can have a guess and um, and, and see if you yeah. come up with trumps. I, I, I feel like I've drawn a complete blank. So you got none? You're going I, for I'm, none? I'm going for... I'm submitting no answers. <laughs> I could give you a clue. You have already mentioned something to do with cakes today. Uh, is it someone... A Victoria Sponge? <laughs> Victoria Sponge did win the Nobel Prize for Literature, yes. She's a great writer. Um, <laughs> That's a really, really obvious clue I just gave you. I don't remember what I mentioned cakes. I only remember the Victoria Sponge. What was the other cake that we talked about? Your bloomin' cake, your doggy cake. Oh, Kipling. Yes. Kipling, Bramley apple cake. Rudyard Kipling, for goodness sakes. Rudyard Kipling. I don't think I could have given you more of a clue there. Unless I'd said his name rhymes with Sudyard Kipling. (laughs) Anyway, we have digressed as usual, but that's... I was was a little bit disappointed in myself that I couldn't name more. Um, And um, America also has a great number of Nobel laureates, although not not that many recently. They have um, 11. That's two more than nine. Tis, tis indeed. Do you know that mo- the mo- most people who listen to this podcast are from the United States of America? Yeah, I, well, I didn't know that most of them were, but it's fantastic. I know that we have lovely listeners across the pond, as we say. Um, I wonder whether our American listeners could name their laureates. Well, there's a challenge. Challenge. Um, yeah, great. So okay. that's. I mean, do you have anything else to say about the Nobel Prize for Literature? Uh, not really. I don't know the guy who won it, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I've not read anything by him. And yeah, like I say, the, all the all the chatter has been about the fact that uh, Murakami hasn't won it, and it's kind of one of those things. Until he does, people are just going to, you know, they might as well just just give it him and get on with it. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Does he really need the one million dollars? Is that how much you get? Yes. Crikey, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Anywho, can I just um, quickly give a little my my two pennies worth on um, on some of the things you guys were talking about in the last couple of episodes? Because I did enjoy the discussions you had. Of, of course. Thank you, um, Hilary Mantel. You were talking about her Margaret Thatcher story, the assassination of Margaret Thatcher. Um, and as I don't live in the UK, I was very interested to know: did it get published by another newspaper? Yes, so the Telegraph had the deal all sewn up with Hilary Mantel that she was going to publish this story. She submitted it to them, and they said, "They, you know, the, just the title alone, I guess, may have put them off." The assassination of Margaret Thatcher. The Telegraph is a Tory newspaper, um, and they decided not to publish it. So in swooped the Guardian, and the Guardian published the story instead. Well, I think this is a very, very good thing that this happened. That it got published? No, that that it didn't get published and then it got published by somebody else. Do you know why? Uh, No, go for it. Because I think we take for granted that that people, especially younger, the younger generation, uh, we take for granted that they know about newspaper bias and the fact that 
certain newspapers have very, very um, definite political swing and political alliance and are influenced in a certain way. I think that people, not everybody knows that. And I think an incident like this will show a lot of people, oh, okay, they might not have known that the Telegraph was a Tory newspaper and that they refused to publish stories about, um, you know, um, prime ministers of old getting assassinated and that the Guardian is a liberal newspaper that will publish it. And I think that that's, that's actually very good for young people to be able to see because when you just read the stories, I think that what worries me is that people think that newspapers are news papers and that they are omniscient and biased things that you can just go to and take as gospel. Do you, do you get where I'm coming from with that? Uh, completely. I mean, I've I am I've become incredibly fascinated more and more with the media in the last four or five years, especially in the UK since there was the whole um, kind of news of the world scandal, which of course it wasn't just the news of the world, but phone hacking. All of the kind of stuff that went with that, um, I just was gripped by, you know, the story after story. I just couldn't quite believe what I was... But, well, so I couldn't quite believe. That's the problem, isn't it? I could believe that the, the newspapers were doing what they do. And also, this, it's in America, we, it's... Um, <clears throat> Um, we have places like uh, Fox News, um, who are you know, incredibly right wing, and you know it is everything. Everything has an a, an agenda in the media, yeah. and um, it's always interesting when literature gets caught up in that. I think, yeah, uh, li- literature generally, generally, I think fiction is able to tread some kind of middle ground when it comes to politics and um and uh and kind of i don't know i don't say divisive opinions but they don't even need to be divisive do they if something is fiction then it's usually accepted um accepted as as fiction no one really sort of makes a huge fuss about it um because mm, you say well that's a word the satanic verses <laughs> well that's yeah unless yeah so the, yeah there are yeah. there are very high profile exceptions and this was a really high profile exception this um, yeah. This Hillary Mantel short story, and for it to kind of still happen now, is kind of bonkers. It, really, that it's the idea. You know, it, it's less bonkers that the Telegraph chose not to publish it than it is um, than, than it is uh, they thought it was a good idea at all. <laughs> I think like, it's all, that was the thing that was just so surprising. Like, like, well, it was surprising that they were surprised that um, that that this might that this might happen. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there were clauses in contracts and all that kind of thing. But yeah, basically, I completely uh, agree with you. I think it is um, very important that people understand as soon as possible, as in when they're growing up, young people kind of yeah. understand and that's not to say that one is better than the other that's not our place to say that we all have our points of view and 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 that's fine but just, no, it's just an- about people picking their papers that's yeah. that's what i think is really important you know pick your paper and that you know it helps just to have something that's a little bit more obvious like this yeah. to show people the differences between different media outlets. And it's having that information. Like I say, it's not a case of making a choice. It's just, you know, I've, I still feel like I'm still, I'm in my 30s now, and I'm still kind of making my mind up with lots of different things in the world, how I feel about them and 
and yeah. um, uh, and that kind of thing. So, and it know. can of course change as well. You know your perspective. Of course. Yeah. Um, after that, I believe you talked about book censorship and the fact that there wasn't uh, like the film classification board that there didn't seem to be an equivalent for books. Um, and I was just thinking about the fact that I don't. I don't think that the film board really bans films. I, I know that it banned the human centipede or human centipede two or something in the UK. I'm not sure whether the same goes for America for a while, but then people could see it. So it must've been allowed again, but that they just censor. So they, you know, in terms of the age limits and, you know, with books, you do kind of have that in terms of the fact that there's, they've got their own areas when you go into a bookshop. So you're not going to find, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey in the in the picture book section. Well, you but, you, you, you will find it right next to uh, Costa Coffee because because <laughs> that's where people uh, you know that's where people go because people you know yeah uh, that's where the footfall is. So that's yes. where you find uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I know this. We've talked about this before because when I did my book signing that time, one of my one of my book signings where there were you know there were literally floods of people um, not around me, and um, and I was right next to. There was there was me. There was a table. Then there was me. Then behind me, there was Fifty Shades of Grey. And then behind Fifty Shades of Grey, there was Costa Coffee. It was kind of a, kind of a, like a like a sort of weird um, capitalism pyramid, and um, I was kind of at the head of it, being being sort of punched in the face by by a lack of people. Oh, sounds like uh, hell. Um, Well, I I personally believe that it's very important that like teenagers have access to adult books and books with adult content because I think that that private space is one of the only places where a lot of young people will find out about what it means to grow up and and be old and things like that and and what's expected and sexual things I mean I I think about the fact that, you know, when, when we were younger, we had we all passed around Judy Bloom books, you know, and we're like, hee hee um, I'm sure everybody knows Judy Bloom has some light, um, naughty content suitable for, for young adults. <laughs> or back, back in the day there, that would have been called probably racy. But anyway, I sounded really old when I said racy. That sounded like a really old thing to say. There are some, but, there are some specific words, aren't there, that, uh, that I, maybe they're just used <laughs> in England, which are kind of... They mean, they mean, they have lots of connotations, but they're still quite, you know, they're a really kind of old-fashioned, polite way of saying something much yes. more filthy. Racy yes. is one. Romp is another. <laughs> Romp, yeah. Um, bonk. Bonk, oh dear. Bonk's horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, but do you know what I mean about this? Like, you can only go so far with Judy Bloom. In the end, you're going to have to, you know, let young people find out what what's going on you know how people get babies in their tummies as um has happened to me and i was thinking back i read a lot of books when i was a teenager that i was completely <laughs> as, freaked as out happened by. to me <laughs> as happened to me nobody let me read naughty racy books and look what's happened now 34 <laughs> and i got a baby in my tummy um no but i i seriously was seriously freaked out by stephen king as a teenager because i read you know uh, Stephen King things which I found to be very very difficult and um and I literally thought like how could somebody write this and not actually want to do this back then I couldn't differentiate between the fact that an author can write something you know like American Psycho about imagining something the difference between imagining something and actually 
doing it or wanting to do it. So, but in terms of the content, I think it was it was fine that I read that kind of stuff. I mean, I just I just didn't necessarily separate it from from real life very much. Um, um, I do think you know I what did, I mean? I know what you mean. I think I did most of my learning through um, Channel Four. Um, I had a TV in my bedroom. Oh, you were one of those children. I was. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Do do you do the, what sort of role literature serves? I think we've we've already talked about the role of literature in kind of politics, how it can sometimes rise above different things and uh, and kind of stand alone and kind of comment on society, comment on various elements of who we are and what we do, what without uh, without all the huge preconceptions that come with having a having a, a kind of a solid standpoint in real life literature does play like a, a massive role in, in 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 other things too like you say how you learn about life how you learn about various um ways to do things when you grow up i i also do you do you know that there's there is a kind of a, a recent i don't know i don't know if uproar is quite the right word but there is a concern that young adult fiction is getting rather too racy and or rather too violent perhaps and there are even I don't know the exact I'll try and look it up I don't I don't it'll take me too long now but I think that there is now a um um this isn't the right term but this is what they're effectively saying it's like young adult erotica basically I think yeah. I think I think there is now a kind of a classification or a cate- a category that people can buy, which is essentially young adults erotica. It's like people have seen Fifty Shades of Grey and thought, "Ooh, let's let's do that," but for, for using words like romp, racy, and bonk. <laughs> that, that Just might, like Judy Bloom did back in the day. That might even be one of the titles. I'm not sure. As it, yeah, your next book right there. Um, yeah, well, I mean. I don't know how worried I am about it. I'm more worried about the fact that, you know, you have to actually go out and pick up a book and read it in order to access stuff that might be challenging. And not as many kids are going to do that as as, as are going to plonk themselves in front of the TV and see something horrific. I mean, I saw something last, last week that I literally nearly vomited from on the TV, from just from a film. And I was not expecting it. We were just flicking through the channels and I was so traumatised by it. I thought... It's it's just it's impossible to navigate, you know. With a book, it's not the same thing. You've got to get into that world. You've got to be invested in it anyway. And I think that that in itself is something which is valuable. Uh, no one listening to this, including me, is interested in in whether it's valuable or not. We all want to know what on earth it was you saw. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. It was just it was a horrible murder scene on, in a film, which just was totally out of the blue and extremely graphic. It was not not very nice, but I'm over it. Well, sort of. I mean, I'm still talking about it a week later, but um, but yeah. Anyway, so that was my two pennies worth on on a lot of the things you were talking about. Um, I was also wanted to ask you, Amazon Direct. You were saying, oh, I don't know whether what my rights are in terms of um, Amazon Direct, and I was wondering, did you actually go and ask your publisher after the podcast? No, I, I haven't asked my. I haven't. I haven't asked. I kind of. And why not? I suspect I don't want to know. I can tell you that I, what I said earlier wasn't just me being silly. I, my, my novel really is ninety nine p in in October <laughs> on on Amazon UK. So on Kindle, it's not going to mention that again, eh? Well, for a purpose, uh, ninety nine. It's ninety nine pence. So you, people can go and buy um, 
my book for 99p, which is, you know, cheap. I think we can all, all agree that's cheap. Um, I don't know if it's the same in the US. It is when I look at the US Amazon store, it says that it's whatever it is, $1.58 or something like that. Um, but I have heard that perhaps if you live in the US, then it, you don't see the same thing. It's kind of normal price. Anyway, I don't know how much money I get from um, Amazon Direct, but I thought people might be interested to know how it works when a book is 99p or extremely cheap, when it's part of like the Amazon monthly deals, Mm -hmm. um, which is what my book is. So I did ask about that. I did sort of, because it it has been part of Amazon um, um, uh, promotions before. And I I mistakenly, I think, have been under the impression that, um, that, uh, that, it, that doesn't affect my royalties, you know, because it's just because it's on sale that, you know, it, it's it's a sale. I've, I'm an author. I haven't chosen and, uh, and and I didn't think, and maybe I was wrong, I'm not entirely sure, uh, that the publisher hadn't chosen to put it on sale. You know, I'm not self-published. I don't choose how much my book is costs. Um, I'd, so I'd always kind of assumed that the royalties were just the same as if it had been sold for three or four pounds or whatever it is on Kindle. Anyway, turns out that's not true. So... Ooh. Whilst it's fantastic that my book is part of a promotion, and the most important thing really is that more people are going to download it, whether they actually go on and then read it or not, who knows, but it's certainly going to get more, in inverted commas, sales. The the negative side to that, I suppose, is the fact that I will probably get probably between 10 and 15 pence, probably on the lower side of that, per copy sold, which isn't very much. Um... So I I just thought that that was interesting. I think sometimes um, I, I don't know whether people, whether readers, um, not just you know not just in my book, but readers in general, when they see books for ninety nine p that aren't self published, whether they think that um, what is the author going to get from this and all that kind of thing. I'm not saying don't go out and buy it. If I was a reader, I would go and buy, and I do, you know, go and buy books when they're cheap. It makes perfect sense, and you know, I really do only care. <laughs> Not only, but I very much primarily care that people read the book and have it rather than how much they pay for it. It's not really that important yeah. at all. It's not going to make that much difference to me. Um, but it's interesting that that's um, that. Um, I, I imagine in almost all cases, uh, that's that's how it works. Yeah. So you kind of your book's getting promoted. It's being sold to more people because it's cheaper, and Amazon are pushing it. But on the downside, you are you're literally getting you know practically nothing in terms of royalties for that particular period yes indeed uh it's interesting to me that you didn't ask your publisher about amazon direct yes i might well my head isn't in in the first novel to be perfectly honest it's why i've you know it's why i've not liked i don't like to mention it much on the podcast my (laughs) my uh my my head is 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 forward facing i'm thinking about the second book and various other projects and my freelance writing stuff and all that kind of thing it's been i've been so busy with other things that and like i've said a couple of weeks ago to you the reality is that things move on i'm very pleased and very proud of my first novel but the publishing world is two years on from when that came out and you know i am but a small fish in a very large pond and i am gradually coming uh well i I hope i'm relatively um, on dry, uh, walking, I don't know where this metaphor is going, but I'm almost towards walking with dinosaurs. I think I'm walking with dinosaurs, and there was, there was a big sort of meteor that was shaped in that was in the shape of kind of two children uh, who looked exactly the same. So two meteors, 
and uh, they were coming down. There were some dinosaurs, and I um, I'm write, writing another book. Yes. So, are you saying that this podcast episode is effectively the last time that you will mention your book, your first book? Well, no. I mean, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you love it, honestly. Well, you know, you, it's it's your third baby. <laughs> That's true. I do a quick count in my head then, but yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> um, and we're looking forward to the fourth baby, which will be published hopefully in the next couple of years. Well, I, it just, uh, just will be. I think you could end the sentence at hopefully. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no. I'm serious. There are no guarantees. I, it's, of course I, not. I think that's another thing people need to know. It's like that. I've uh, not about me, but just in general, I don't know if people realise. But just because an author has been published once and you know has an agent, for example, for that book, no one is obliged, if nothing is signed, to um, to make it happen again. You know, it's um, it's a long way from a from a done deal. Tell me about it. The commissioning editor at my publishing company who um, who took my book on and, and was the person that saw it through left to go and work for Amazon. You mentioned that. It's, um, yeah, what can you do? Exactly. And then you think, oh, okay, right, well, uh, hmm, all righty. But, you know, when we get to the second book, we'll worry about that, eh? Indeed. This has been a podcast of bits and pieces, quite a lot of sex. Hang on. Interesting bits and pieces, I think you meant to say. Absolutely. Um, and um, we have but a couple of minutes left, maybe three, maybe four. I think um, what we all want to hear is live here in the studio. Is a listener's question. I did it properly that time because while I was away, I heard myself being played back obviously quite a few times um and i was uh, disappointed because i've done it many times i've done that jingle many many times and i don't think you chose my best version of it i think you tried to choose the worst version so that i would sound absolutely ridiculous i mean it was almost like um i was pressed for time and just picked the nearest one i could possibly find <laughs> from the most recent show that we'd done it's true. I have been a bit sloppy. I think I need to try to get better at doing the jingle. So that was my first attempt at trying to get a bit better. So that in the future, if I'm ever away, I can't have, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, terrible singing. Yeah, I mean, playing I th- on a loop. Uh, once again, not for the first time in this, uh, this episode, I think I speak for everyone listening when they say they could, you know, we could all really tell the difference between <laughs> what, what, you, what you just performed and previous. Just wait till I bring out the opera style next week. Um, now, going back to... Um, the, oh, I'm not going to do it again. Listener's question. Um, we had a question via Twitter from... Ooh, from Andrew Einsbruck. Another name which could also be Einsbruck or Einsbruch. We'd like to know how you pronounce your name, Andrew. Um, but your question was, looking to start a writing group, what are the best activities and what are the success factors for a great experience? Um, and uh, Andrew's Twitter handle is at E-I-N-S-P-R-U-C-H. What do you think, Ian? I've never started a writing group. But have you been in one? I have never been in what one would call a formal well, what what one would call a writing group. I don't know why I'm talking like the Queen. I've no idea. Um, in your university writing course, which was um, uh, over a whole year, wasn't it? 
Did you have any exciting or interesting um, writing exercises which you think would work in a writing group environment? Um, not many. <laughs> <laughs> Great. No, well, the, I, I haven't been part of a writing group really. Um, not in the way that I think that Andrew is asking us, where you kind of look on the internet, look for local writing groups, go along to kind of a meeting and chat. But I was, as you know, part of a, um, uh, uh, an MA writing course where for an entire year or, or more, actually, because I did another six months uh, a couple of years later when I did my novel, um, where, I, where I was very much part of um, two or three different groups where we would go into a room every week for a couple of hours and we would have a, the tutor. And that was, uh, it was very much a writing group environment. And yeah. um, and so I don't know about the best activities. The way it used to work was we would, um, we, we would know beforehand um, that someone would be reading their work and... Um, and that person would send their work out beforehand. Um, it was probably two people, actually. It was usually a couple of people um, per week. And over the course of 12 weeks, you know, everyone got to have their turn at least once. So you would you would uh, say, I've, you know, this is what I'm working on. And then you would read your work out to the group. And uh, they would already already have read it because you would have emailed it them beforehand. And then you would give them feedback. And, and to be perfectly honest, I, I, it was relatively brutal. Um, yeah. Not in a... Not in an unkind way, though. It was brutal in the sense that people were honest. And yeah. and the, the important thing, I think, here is is um, it's, about, it's about the people you're with. The fact that I was on an MA writing course, it really helped that situation where people were being honest and giving that kind of uh, criticism um, because everyone that was on the course had to be accepted on the course they had to, you had to be a certain standard you know the wheat had already been separated from the chaff so there was a kind of a mutual respect there anyway because we all had been through this process in order to get there um yes. so when people spoke you generally you generally you know you listened and and you were uh, and you you knew that you'd <laughs> you knew you'd get your turn not to get your own back but you would you would you know you were there for that that's why you were there you'd paid money good money a lot of money to be there and so that's what you wanted and to be honest i don't see why it has to be different from a writing group where it's you know it could be a group of friends or just uh, a group of people who know each other and there isn't this kind of this extra layer of of um well money bureaucracy and kind of having a tutor there um you can still have that same level of respect but i can see potentially there being problems if people are at a different level, at a different standard. I know that this is all subjective, but I think if we all know deep down that there are, there is kind of some some writing is slightly better, can be better than others, um, and so that, that I can see where that might be a problem. So I think I think it's key just to make sure that you are with in a writing group with, or you only if you're starting a writing group, which is what the question was. Be selective about who you invite, and I don't mean that in a kind of <laughs> in kind of a terrible terrible way in where you kind of you're being all uppity and kind of you know choosy over what type of person it is but you know be really selective and to make make sure that the people that are joining are people who you who are going to get something out of the group but also that you feel like can add to the group in terms of providing that honesty and that feedback and that no one's going to kind of blow their top if they get you know the slightest bit of criticism that kind of thing yeah i agree agree with all that and i've been in a few writing groups and I think for me, the most important thing, like you say, is that you respect the other people in the group because, you know, they are going to be sitting there in front of you saying, 
yeah, but I mean, I think that you should change the last bit of that and blah, blah. And if you don't respect their writing, then you're not going to respect their criticism. And I've, I've left groups before where I've had people, you know, say to me, oh, that they think I should change, like, you know, basically half a poem, or they didn't think that, that they couldn't understand that. And then, you know, I've got that poem published later. And I think that I could just tell in those situations that the kind of, kind of dynamic was wrong and that I needed I needed a different kind of feedback you know and a different kind of sparring um and um so one way we did it actually which I I don't know whether Andrew has already ideas about who who he wants to be in the writing group but I um was on a creative writing course where we were together for quite a few weeks like you said it's not it wasn't a master's it was just a shorter course but then you could see through that you know diff- people's different levels of writing and after that a few of us formed a, a writing group out of that course and that was quite interesting um so that's another way to do it so to actually be part of something more formal and then to to make your own group on the side um one other thing i wanted to say on it was in terms of activities i i always liked it when there was an expectation that everybody would get to read something short and that you wouldn't be spending hours and hours on one piece of work because there's no motivation to go along every week if you know that it's you know going to be five weeks until you get to read your thing I think it's really important that they're short short bits from people if you're going to present a part of a novel it might just be a page or a paragraph that you want to really investigate or a poem and that you know somebody is on the time so they say okay we're gonna now we're gonna move on um, because then you feel like you're getting something back. You know, there's nothing worse than sitting in a writing group where it's all about other people's writing. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit, a bit egotistical, but I mean, everybody's there to try to develop their writing. So you, you need to feel like there's a balance. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely right. And uh, I may not have started a writing group, but as I mentioned earlier and uh, many times before, Words Aloud, the spoken word night that I, I, I co-set up with some friends, with Manuela, in fact, um, and that was the that was it was really successful way beyond what we could have could have expected um the reason that we packed the room every month was i think because it was different from other spoken word nights which do which where it's exactly as you say you have about five or six people and they all read for 10 to 15 minutes we were having none of that it was a 3 minute limit and it meant that pretty much anyone who turned up was going to get an opportunity. We did have a pre-booking system and things like that as well, but basically everyone got a maximum of three minutes and and you knew, not only did you know that if someone, you know, that something, if something wasn't great, then it wouldn't last for long because, you know, that sounds harsh, but someone reading for 10, 15 minutes is pretty much impossible to listen to anyway, never mind if it's not, not much cop. Um, mm. But it just meant exactly as you say, that there was a, a community was fostered because everyone knew that they would get their chance and no one no one was allowed to stand out more than anyone else, including us, including the, like, us organisers who occasionally performed. I mean, I, I, I performed, we did, I don't know, we did what, between 10 and 20 uh, months and I bet I only read it maybe three or four of them something like that maybe more but not not many like it wasn't about us if you're the organizer of a, of a group um, or a community do not make it about you it should never be about you mm. yeah and one last thing I think which is really important just to add to this um, is that one of the first activities I think you should do as a group together is to discuss um, how to give critical feedback and what's you know what's okay and what what you encourage 
like you know in terms of saying I really like this and have you thought about and also presenting your criticism as if I were writing this I would do this not this is not good and you shouldn't write this because I mean it's amazing how people just let go in, the, in these situations and and let, let rip you know and I think that there is a fine art to giving other people criticism and not everybody is good at it so it's good to to get that um you know decided upon early how the group is going to progress in terms of criticizing each other's work indeed we are well past where we would like to be in terms of time wiseness are we it's just it just flies by i had so much fun it's so nice to be back well we will carry on all our literary titterings that's a new word and i don't think that's a read word you have to bleep out i've just made that up well it's another contender for the title of the show i got (laughs) written down um previously before you said literary titterings um, I was thinking pyramid of capitalism, but then I've been sat, sort of as you were talking, and I was I was kind of you know, drifting away. I was um, I was debating whether we should call the show um, the episode um, "Racy Rump Bonk," and I was trying to work out whether it, whether they actually were offensive words or not. <laughs> well, you know, we, we might get loads more podcast listeners if you if you write all that in there. Should we try uh, it? Oh, fine, yeah. I mean, we always do literary titterings anyway. We could use that any time. But anyway, we will continue our literary titterings next week, won't we? And um, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, at The Flying Poet. Uh, and you can find me at Ian Broom, I-A-I-N-B-R-O-O-M-E. Great. Well, uh, that's it. See you next week, eh? See ya. Bye. <laughs>